Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Hey, my friends, welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. I am so blessed and excited to be with you on this episode today as we dive into one of my favorite uh, chapters in the book of Acts. I hate using that word, but I just like the experience that we're about to go through when Paul is in Athens. And that's why I titled this episode today, The Art of a Masterful Debater. Because what we're going to see Paul and Silas do is engage an audience of different people But do it in such a way where you see God clearly use a man of God like Paul and also his companion, Silas. Now, I don't need to tell you, in the times that we're living in today, there is so much debate. As I'm recording this, I just watched the debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden last night, and I was appalled, quite frankly. It was just so discouraging and disappointing to see two grown men, one a president and one who was a vice president, former senator, and wanting to become president, be so um, mean and immature and the arguing going back and forth and not resolving anything. And that's an example for us to follow. And it's shameful. And so it's so perfect and it's so comforting as I record this that we're jumping into a passage to encounter a person who did it the way we're to do it. And that is Paul who masterfully engages different audiences of people for Christ. So today is podcast 130 as we continue verse by verse through the book of Acts. Now, again, if you're new to this podcast, I want to welcome you guys and thank you so much for your support. We have a website you can go to, standstrongministries.org. Click on podcasts. All the archives are there, study notes. We did a chronological teaching of the gospel. So if you've missed out, you've never done that before, I encourage you guys to do that. If you are a regular and you've been with us for quite some time, again, I want you to know I'm praying for you guys. Our ministry here thanks you guys for your support. Keep, keep it up. Keep praying, keep downloading, keep sharing. And you know what? If God has uh, used this ministry to bless you going through the Bible, and you can honestly say that you have a better footing, a better understanding, better comprehension, greater conviction, you're more getting a, a more steady dosage of scripture as a result of listening to this podcast and it's helped you, you know, feed your soul, but also really motivated you to do likewise on your own time and with other people. Would you prayerfully consider supporting this ministry? You know, we're going into a new year pretty soon, and we want this ministry to grow. Matter of fact, on our YouTube channel, as we're putting out videos like this, we want to start putting out curriculum, online tools to reach people. And just so you're aware, every week this podcast reaches tens of thousands of people. That's right. And we actually have uh, very few dollars that we put towards the marketing. So it's just, you know, word of mouth and spreading as people search my name or whatever and they fall upon this but we want to grow that because we are seeing the numbers that there are so many people of all different demographics around the world who 
listen to podcasts. But you know what? There's a lot of preaching about the Bible, which is awesome that we have a lot of great preachers today. But this is about verse-by-verse teaching in the scriptures, looking at it for what it is. These are not topical things. This isn't me trying to come up with a new book. This is just saying, hey, let's go through the book of Acts. And of course, when we're done with this, we're going to probably jump in the book of James and then move our way chronologically through the New Testament. So look forward to that. So if this is a blessing to you, if you want to see more Christians like you study God's word to know God's word and to help someone like me, just a a fellow servant of the Lord who's trying to come alongside you and your family, maybe your church and teach you guys the word, we need your support. We need your prayers. We need you guys to be sharing the material, be telling people. So if you have been with us for a long time, but you've never told anybody about Stand Strong in the Word podcast, you know, this isn't uh, me you know, scolding anybody, but just pleading with you to consider sharing it and also going to the website and clicking on donate and giving whatever amount that you can give to help further this ministry to reach people around the world. That is the goal. And it's amazing to see year after year how God has blessed this ministry. So if you're watching or you're listening, thank you guys for being with me. Now, with that being said, this is Podcast 130, The Art of a Masterful Debater. We're going to jump right in because, as I said, I'm excited to jump through this this passage of Scripture. I remember years ago, just to kind of set the stage, studying philosophy in Arizona. And, you know, there's a lot of people that I admired as debaters Alvin Plantiga and William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland and Dr. Geyser and Ravi Zacharias and many other people. Maybe you know some of these names. But ultimately, when I looked at Acts 17, studying philosophy and seeing the nuances here and how Paul reasoned with these people and what that actually meant and learning more about his background and what it took to be the kind of person, um, the kind of philosopher that he was It blew my mind and it really started to motivate me because it was like for the very first time actually looking at scripture and seeing, yes, these people did apologetics. These people defended the faith. These people were philosophers. These people are well-trained and oftentimes, and typically the case is, right, in modern day, we look at that in other people. And then when we look at scripture, we just kind of neglect to see that, no, this was actually Paul in this case, next to obviously Jesus, was one of the most sophisticated minds in all of the world. You know, it blows our mind when we look at Socrates or Plato or Aristotle, or we look at in later times of church history, particularly when you look at Jonathan Edwards. And you look at even John Calvin, you look at these brilliant minds, you look at a lot of the founders of, 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 of the United States and seeing how they were able to take a biblical understanding of scripture and they're studying philosophers and pe- people like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, etc., and how they're reasoning through the word of God, the law, and how they believed in natural order, natural law. And so that's why this is such an exciting passage, because you see a man like Paul, who understood the times he lived in. And he wasn't just there reading the Jewish scriptures. He was reading the Jewish scriptures, but he was also familiar with the writings of people in his day and even prior to his day and and noticed the influences that it had among the Jews, among Greeks, among the Romans, 
and he was able to engage them. He was ready. He was prepared. So just to set the stage to let you guys know, this chapter years ago helped shape my understanding of doing apologetics and the culture that we live in today. It was because of this masterful debater, Paul himself. So with that being said, if you have a Bible, let's jump right into it. The first thing that we're going to see is that Paul and Silas, they reason with the Jews in Thessalonica in verses 1 through 9. Let me read it. Now, when they had passed through Amphibolus in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. That's the modern day of uh, Salonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in. And it was the custom, that means to maintain a tradition. And on three Sabbath days, he, he reasoned, that means to converse formally with them from the scriptures, explaining, meaning opening and proving, that's alleging to lay side by side to prove with evidence. So he's literally with scrolls, he's showing them the fulfillment of Christ in the Jewish scriptures. And he's saying to them, well, let me go jump back. It says, so that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he was saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the, of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they found not, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And then in verse seven, it says, and Jason had re has received them and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another King Jesus and the people in the city authorities, that's the officials, were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security, that means a pledge or a bond from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Paul travels along the Roman highway of the Via Ignatia. Now, Amphibolus is 33 miles southwest of Philippi and Apollonia over 20 miles from Amphibolus. And so Paul's mission was to reach Thessalonica. Uh, we know later, First and Second Thessalonians, he writes, right, those letters, now, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, which was a hundred miles from Philippi. So remember, this is just tracking to where we left off in the travels uh, that Paul is currently at as we're about to jump into his third missionary journey in a few chapters. So this is still currently his second missionary journey. And if you missed the previous podcast in podcast 129, I showed a video so you can go to YouTube to check it out of the travels that Paul gave which was uh, some people have from 1,200 miles to almost 2,000 miles. Some even have it over 2,000 miles that Paul traveled during his second missionary journey. So he's right in the thick of it right now. So he's, his mission was to reach Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia, which was 100 miles from Philippi, as I mentioned. And Paul saw that Thessalonica, this was a strategic location for him to spread the gospel. Notice in the Balkan Peninsula. See, that was one of the things I think that we oftentimes overlook, we just say, okay, it goes to this city. I don't know where these cities are at, what the modern name of them are today. And it kind of doesn't have any relevance. But what I'm trying to do here is we look at scripture to give us proper perspective. 
is one is the strategy behind Paul's maneuvering and his focus and his reasoning. So he's in the heart of Macedonia at the capital so that the gospel can spread in the Balkan Peninsula. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 and 8, this is what Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica. He says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So that, that tells us that, again, this is out of Paul's control, obviously, but this is what he prayed. It's, it's ultimately God's work to draw people to himself. But this was what Paul was praying for, and this was the reason why God sent him here. And he saw the great need because he knew that if he could reach the capital here in Thessalonica, the people at the capital, they could be witnesses to all of Macedonia and Achaia. And that's what he says in the letter in 1 Thessalonians 1. And he continues to say, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but notice he says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So that's the amazing thing, my friends. The Billy Grahams of the world, the Lewis Palau's of the world, the Ravi Zacharias's of the world, two of them have passed away. Lewis still lives. Keep praying for him. I love the ministry that he has done through the years and been a, and, and been a part of some of his crusades, some of his revivals. But we kind of think that God uses those people and they reach a mass amount of people. And that is the case. But notice, it wasn't Paul's messages that impacted this region. What was it? It was the people that he reached who then reached people who then reached people who then reached people who then reached people. That's the Great Commission. It's not just one man reaching all of the, the uh, region of Macedonia or Achaia. He says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Isn't that amazing? So I just want you guys to stop and think where you're living at right now, starting with yourself. How did you come to faith? And how is your faith impacting the lives of other people that are leading them to faith? And likewise, they're leading other people to faith. See, the amazing thing that we're told here is that Paul often, as we'll see throughout the book of Acts, he goes to the synagogues of the Jews. And Thessalonica had a large population of Jews, unlike Philippi, remember, that we learned about. But it, they also hosted an array of Egyptian shrines and deities. So again, that's going back to this whole title, the art of a masterful debater. Where Paul went, he had to adjust himself. It would vary. A lot of Jews, not so many Jews. Jews came to Christ. A lot of Jews, in this case, are in an uproar, and they're going to start turning against him. Before that, we saw the Nicanaeum and Lystra. He's getting stoned. They dragged him out. They left him for dead. In other cases, they're going to they're gonna hear him more on this matter later. Then you see the Hellenists. Some of them are accepting him. Others are rejecting him. It varied. And so in this location now, there's a lot of Egyptian shrines. There's a lot of deities that come from that time period of Egypt. So he has to, again, masterfully understand the type of people that he's engaging, unlike when he just came out of Philippi. And so when it says that Paul went in, as is his custom, right, on the Sabbath, to converse with them, despite being rejected by the Jews, when you go back to Acts chapter 13, verses 33 through 48, Paul still insisted on going to the synagogues. 
and he spent three weeks sharing with the Jews. If you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you're to begin in verse 5, all the way to chapter 2, verse 16, you will see the time commitment that Paul had with the Jews alone. But when you look at the total amount of time that Paul spent in Thessalonica, it could have been up to even six months in length, some scholars think. For example, let me just break it down. The Philippian church sent money on two occasions when you look at scripture, when Paul was ministering in Thessalonica. You can see that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. Now, during Paul's stay, he worked during the week as a tent making, uh, a tent maker. And a lot of that has to deal with him actually uh, working with leather. And you can see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 3. You can see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 again in verse 9. You can actually jump to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 7 through 10. So the reason I break this down for you is because you, in actuality, when you start taking the history in, in order, in the order that we can, we can make sense of it, you actually see that Paul was probably in Thessalonica longer than him just reasoning with them in the, in the synagogues for three consecutive weeks. Now, this term, he reasoned. Notice, Paul doesn't preach at the Jews, but he reasons with them from the scriptures to prove Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, according to Luke, Paul argued two main points, right? The first is he's exposing this truth, this understanding for the Jews that Christ suffered because in their mind, the Messiah who comes is going to rule and reign. He's not a suffering servant, but he's showing them Psalm 22. He's showing them Isaiah 53. He's showing them Zechariah chapter 12, and he's showing them, no, you, that's one of the reasons why you guys neglected to worship Jesus because he suffered. He was cursed on the tree. And your, the law says that curses any man who dies on the tree. And so you said, obviously, he couldn't be God in the flesh. But you've missed it. Because number two, Christ rose from the dead. If you go to Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, you see that. So he says, yes, he died. He died for our sins. He was the ultimate sacrifice. But on the third day, he rose. He defeated sin. So what Paul does here is it says that and some of them were persuaded in joining Paul and Silas as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Once again, he's establishing a very important church in Thessalonica like he did. Prominent people came to Christ and that's actually a strategy in itself. Sometimes it takes you going to the top, to the officials, to the people who are in charge. So just think about that evangelistically when you do mission work, and I oftentimes ask people that a lot, what impact are you having with dignitaries? What impact are you having on the local uh, politics, the mayor, etc.? Because when you do look at Paul's ministry, you see a lot of times the leading women, devout people, officials, prominent people in positions of power were coming to Christ, which is an argument we can make of why we need to be reaching these kind of people because they're going to legislate a certain morality. And that's important because of civility. So his evangelistic impact is felt even among the elite class in the city. But of course, then the Jews, once again, get upset about this. 
Now, Paul's authority over influential Gentiles was something that Jews were not willing to do because they saw Gentiles defiled. So in actuality, Jews hated Gentiles and the Gentiles hated the Jews. But what is a Jewish man who is a Roman citizen doing? He's reaching both. But the Jews don't like it. They're jealous. So what do they do? They plot a riot in order to accuse Paul and Silas and possibly Timothy's among them as, with civil unrest. So that kind of shows you another tactic, by the way, uh, when there is a huge debate in the world, uh, politically, let's say, who's causing the civil unrest? Who is blaming who for the civil unrest? Because when there's civil unrest, there's a lack of leadership. There's a lack of law and order. So they go after Jason. Every time I see this, obviously, with my name, I'm always kind of envisioning or picturing myself. I joke with my kids and point and say, look how famous dad is. He's in the Bible. But this guy, Jason, he's brought before the city authorities for hosting Paul and Silas. So you think about in the course of time, when you look at persecution, guilt by association, right? I've actually met a lot of people who are guilty for supporting or aligning themselves with somebody who was wanted by the government because they were a preacher, they were an evangelist. And so if you house them, if you cared for them, you are accused of the same things that they were supposedly doing. You're at fault as much as they are. So these accusations against Paul and Silas, including sedition, meaning that's claiming Jesus is king, not Caesar. So notice how they're playing with this terminology. And so they're doing this to cause a disturbance in the city. Now, remember with Philippi, they wanted Paul out because they didn't want to be in a, in a, seen in a bad light with Rome. They liked their independence from Rome. They didn't want any problems. So they had to get rid of Paul. Now the Jews accused Jesus. Remember, if you go back, the Jews accused Jesus of being a king to challenge Caesar. And so they're just applying that same type of thing to Paul. And what's interesting is they knew things about Jesus because they knew how the Jewish people a few years back were able to turn that against Jesus and have him crucified. And yet it's Paul who's there reasoning with them in the synagogue, showing them scriptures, how Jesus fulfilled scripture. So there's some things, there's a certain narrative that the Jewish people year after year, as the early church is growing, these Christians are part of the way. And people like Paul, who was a Sanhedrin, Pharisee of Pharisees, they're able to have a certain narrative for the Jewish people to buy into to discredit Christ. Now, the New King James Study Bible says this, quote, in AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome due to riots that were ignited by a group of zealous Jews. Their insurrectionists were advocating revolution against Rome and were opposing the installation of a new king. Paul's accusers were trying to paint him as a revolutionary who was bringing sedition to Thessalonica. So that gives us a backstory now that not only with the issue they had with Jesus years ago in the way growing, but you see that there's, an, there's again, tension among the Jewish people in Rome, which again is ultimately going to lead, at this time Claudius is in power, but it's also ultimately going to lead to Nero and it's ultimately lead to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, it's not for certain, but perhaps this incident that we see with the officials, these city authorities, 
is Paul referring again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 and 18, where he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Another insight, my friends, when there is opposition, when there is civil unrest, Notice, I think Satan is behind it. He's the one that's hindering the work of the gospel to be spread when people are messed up. And, and so Paul's referring to this time where he's, he's ministering, God's doing a great work, but then this becomes a big, big, big problem with the Jewish people to go after Paul. And it says, and when they had taken money or security, pledge or bond from Jason, the rest, they let them go. So they had to, you know, basically... Um, fork over some cash to set him free. Now, the Zonervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary of the New Testament, say that five times fast, says, quote, archaeology has dramatically vindicated Luke's reliability on this issue. A total of 70 inscriptions have, been, have now been discovered that make use of this term. Over three quarters of these are from Macedonia, and over half of those are from the city of Thessalonica. Some of these inscriptions date to the first century and a few date as early as the third century BC. The term appears to have been used primarily in Macedonia as a title for the chief magistrates in the city. Thus, Luke not only chooses an appropriate term to refer to the local officials at Thessalonica, but appears to have carefully selected the precise title that the Thessalonians are using. So we just skim past this term uh, politicarchus or officials or city authorities, but this was a unique term that we actually find in archaeology. And so Luke is recording this. He's putting this down to to let us know that this this civil unrest gets the authorities involved. So yes, some elite people are coming to saving faith, but then there's still people that Satan is using in authority. They're trying to dispel. They're trying to silence. They're trying to put down people like Paul from sharing and spreading the gospel to the Jews and also to the Greeks. So now let's jump to verse 10 through 15. In the second part here, we see Paul and Silas make disciples in Berea. So it says here that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. That's modern uh, Vera. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble. That means they're tolerant. They're generous than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up, that means to shake up like an earthquake, the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off in his way to the sea, either, we don't know if this is Dion or Methon or Macrogeolos, if I'm saying that correctly, or Alakai ports, we don't know exactly. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, arrived, that means at the port from Piraeus, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So for their safety, a group from the church in Thessalonica sent Paul and Silas. They sent him 45 miles away to Berea. 
Now, this was a remote region that people would least expect that Paul would travel to from Thessalonica. So notice again the strategy there to make sure that he was safe. Now, this is interesting because what Luke does is in verse 11, he contrasts the Jews in Berea with those of Thessalonica. The Bereans here were devout students of the scriptures. So remember when in Thessalonica, when Paul was there for, for many weeks, and in actuality, some people have him there for six months, he was reasoning with them, meaning he was laying the scriptures side by side and showing them Christ in them. Now, the Bereans in this hand, they know the scriptures too, like Jews are supposed to, no matter if they're Bereans or, Philipp, uh, or the, uh, Thessalonians. But they were diligently searching out to verify. So it's one thing when you're teaching someone something and they're listening and they're observant. It's another when they take what you have taught them, they've written it down, if you will, and then they go verify it. They validate it. And that's what the Bereans were doing. Now, many Bereans, they became Christians during the ministry of Paul. Matter of fact, when you look at in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, Luke mentions a Berean Jew, Sopater, who accompanies Paul to Jerusalem according to Romans chapter 16, verse 21. And the amazing thing is, is that Paul's work in Macedonia and Berea, it would send the gospel westward. So now what's happening is these Jewish people who are becoming, we refer to obviously today as Messianic Jews, these are followers of Jesus Christ. They believe him to be the Messiah, their savior. They're now ministering to Jews as a result. And what's amazing is that Paul had this opportunity because of the civil unrest in Thessalonica, causing him to go 45 miles away to a remote region and share the gospel. So the Jews from Thessalonica, they hear though that Paul continues to preach the gospel. So they finally find out where he's at and they arrive in Berea to silence him once again. Now, after further turmoil, as we're reading here in verses 14 and 15, with the Jews, Paul is then sent off to Athens. Now, remember, this is now the home of Socrates. So again, notice the transition that Paul is having from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to now going to Athens. This is the home of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, who is the founder of Epicureanism, and Zeno, who is the founder of Stoicism. And we're told here that Silas and Timothy, they come to him. So after joining Paul in Athens from Philippi, Timothy returns to Thessalonica to give a full report on the health of the church. I love that. So the next time you're hearing Actually, matter of fact, a buddy of mine who's doing this weekly prayer around the globe, he had a individual who uh, is a part of a ministry that ministers to the persecuted church, predominantly in China. And it was just great to hear the health report, if you will, that he was giving about the persecuted church. It was just, it was, it was, it was just very moving as we prayed for the body of believers. And that's what they were doing here. Because if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. 
to establish and exhort you in your faith. So here, when you look at what's happening in Acts chapter 17 and you cross-reference it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it seems that Silas eventually returns to Macedonia according to Acts chapter 18 verse 5. And it's there that he received contributions for missionary work if you look at Philippians chapter 4 verse 15. Now, by the way, when we continue into our, our study of the book of Acts, you'll see even into Acts chapter 20, there's a continual giving of support, receiving contributions in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that Paul and his companions are receiving from churches that they're establishing in Phrygia and Galatia and other parts of the globe. And they're taking these funds and they're going to send it to Jerusalem and they're going to start doing more outreach. And see, that's another reason, my friends, it's so important for us to band together and not just you know, listen to a podcast like this, but honestly, to support financially the work that God um, has called people uh, like me here on the podcast to do. This is by faith. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't born into wealth to where I just took some of my inheritance and, and, and started to build a ministry and buy equipment and pay for the marketing and the staff people. It's by faith. It's saying, okay, Lord, just like you raised up people as we're seeing here in the book of Acts, you're going to raise up people with me who are going to support me, who are going to bring contributions like we're seeing here, whether it be Silas or Timothy. So from Athens here, Paul will sail to Corinth, and it's going to be in Corinth that he's going to be reunited with Timothy and Silas. Again, we see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. We'll see that in the next chapter and we'll see, and we see that in First Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. So let's now jump into our third aspect on today's podcast. Paul openly now debates the philosophers in Athens, and this is going to be a long portion of scripture. So bear with me. We're going to read from sixteen verses sixteen all the way to verse thirty-four. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. That literally means severe emotional concern within him as he saw, meaning he observed, he dwelt, he was a spectator. He was examining carefully that the city was full of idols. I love that because it shows that Paul, he was studying the people in Athens. And so what did he do in verse 17? So he reasoned. Again, he gives a formal argument in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed. That means they, they disputed forcefully by expressing differences of opinion with Paul. And some said, what does this babbler? Now the babbler terminology means he was like a scavenger. He collected tidbits of information. They referred to them as birds, just so like a bird would come and take a hold of the little things. So they're just saying this guy just kind of gathered up little tidbits of information. And so he's really an idiot. That's what some people are saying about Paul. Others said he seems to be a preacher. That means a herald, a proclaimer of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took, that means they grasped, they seized him with focus and brought him to Oropagus. That's Mars Hill or the Hill of Eris. And they said to him, May we know, may we fully understand what this new teaching is that you are presenting? 
for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive, again, I observe, I'm, I've dwelled with you, I'm a spectator, I'm examining your livelihood, your belief system carefully, that in every way you are very religious. That means you're very devout, you're very superstitious. For as I passed along and observed, again, that same word, the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation, that means pan-ethnos in Greek, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In him we live and move. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, that means the divine nature, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from the midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. So the third thing here, Paul openly debates with the philosophers in Athens. So we saw Paul engage the Jewish people in Thessalonica, as he reasoned with them. We see Paul come into a small region where the Bereans were avid students. And so he was able to um, be challenged by them and to respectfully and scholarly respond to the Bereans to where they tested Paul. And and, uh, again, he was proved to be accurate, okay? And now we see him fleeing to Athens and he's among many of these Greek minds, these philosophical minds. Now, Paul was greatly disturbed if you notice the terminology that Paul uses, or excuse me, that Luke uses, because it says that Paul's spirit in verse 16 was provoked. That means it was brought again to severe emotional concern. So just think about the emotion that that has. If you've ever been burdened in ministry to see a state where some people are at, and it's overwhelming, this is how Paul was feeling. He was greatly disturbed by all the paganistic temples and the statues in uh, in these idols that they were erecting. 
he knew that this was demonic. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 23. This was not honorable to the Lord. So what does Paul do about it? Does he make fun of them? Does he try to get out of there? No, Paul, again, as a masterful debater, he wants to engage the Athenians. And so what happens is that he starts reasoning now with the Greeks, like he was reasoning with the Jews. He's now reasoning, meaning he's giving a formal argument. That means that Paul is actually able to address philosophies, authors of their day that they're reading to give a defense of Christianity. Paul made a point to preach the gospel in the economic center. So he goes at the heart of the city and he does it so he can draw many common Gentiles. That's another strategy that shows Paul's mastery, if you will, that he goes where the people are. And so he saw the spiritual warfare was in the marketplace. He saw that the spiritual warfare was in the synagogue. He saw that the spiritual warfare was at Mars Hill. So notice the different levels, the marketplace where life happens, the economy, the synagogue where the Jewish people are, who've rejected the Messiah, that being Jesus, they're awaiting him still. And then Mars Hill, where they have all the brilliance, all these great minds coming together. And that's what they did every day, day in and day out. They philosophized. And so these Epicureans were told in verse 18, these Stoic philosophers, they're conversing now with Paul, meaning they're disputing, as I mentioned earlier, forcefully. So if you've ever been in a very heated debate or you've seen a theist debate an atheist or a Democrat to a Republican, you know, they're they're on polar opposite positions. And so some people, and this is a a tactic that, that, uh, People use often, if they don't have a proper defense or they can't back up their argument or they get pushed in a corner, you do an ad hominem. You do, and again, that's a fallacy, but you you attack the person's character to try to, one, uh, evade the question, but also to try to discredit the person by just poking fun of them. That, again, doesn't prove your argument and it doesn't disprove their argument. You're just making fun of the person. And that's what they're doing here. They're calling him a babbler. Now, the Epicureans, they believe that gods were removed and inaccessible, and therefore they pursued happiness and pleasure in the meaninglessness, if you will, of the world. Stoics, on the other hand, they believed God, if you will, is everything. So they're pantheistic. And so they pursued morality and they denied the pleasures of the world. So here you have two polar opposite positions that were kind of the primary ideological positions of the day in Athens. And so they're looking at Paul as, and both of them are in agreement, Paul's an unsophisticated guy who's just a gatherer of random information and he's making no sense. And he's just spouting them out. So when they say that something, but then when some other people jump in and they say, well, no, this is a preacher who's teaching us foreign things, these foreign, as they refer here, Luke does, divinities, what this means is that when they're hearing about things of Jesus, the philosophers had never heard about Jesus in this light because it wasn't Paul who is saying, I'm a deity. He's referring to a deity like Jesus and presenting his teachings and showing how different he is 
in comparison to the other deities that they're worshiping. And so they grabbed him intently and threw him at the Oropagus and, and because they wanted to fully understand what Paul was teaching. Now, the Oropagus was like a religious and um, philosophical think tank, if you will. And it was a place where they addressed, again, all of the deep philosophical theories of the day. Now, the structure, it, it stood on a prominent hill uh, some 400 feet high, and the name came from the Greek god of war, Eris. You can actually see, still see the mound today if you look it up. So Luke is now describing the Athenians as, um, as the seed pickers of truth because he says here in verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So he's actually saying they don't really have a foundation of what they actually believe. They just like gathering different information. And it's not a matter of just making sense of it. It's just a matter of just debating, just to debate. So Paul, I love this because remember when he stood in the marketplace, when he went and stood in the synagogue, he's now standing before a completely different audience. But he had taken time to examine carefully and so Paul addresses the Jews in a manner that's suitable to their culture and their way of life. You go back to Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 41. Paul there is able to reason respectfully, masterfully with the people because he understands them. He knows their positions because he's trained. He's taken the time to investigate. And so he appeals to these people by respecting their passionate desires for the truth. He appeals to their religious intellect. He doesn't shame them. Now, remember, he's disturbed by the idolatry, but he doesn't say, you sick idols or, or, or uh, you sick fans of the idols, your idolatry is, a, is appalling, you paganistic, no good for nothing. No, Paul comes to them. And he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So you guys are very superstitious. And so let me introduce you to a character. Now, before he does that, what he does is he, he surveys the many artificial gods that he came upon. And when he was looking and investigating and studying all of these Greek deities, and many of them he probably had studied in his training back then, but had never seen them face to face, but he comes upon an inscription to an unknown God. And so he says, there it is. This is going to be my lesson. I'm going to use this inscription to compel the people to hear me out because these Athenians are even aware that there are things beyond even their comprehension. And I'm going to introduce them to the creator of the heavens and the earth. So when he says these objects of your worship, what he's saying is, look, I'm going to appeal to you guys on a supernaturalistic way because that's what the Athenians embraced. So there was even a limitation to their intellect. So Paul presents God in verse 24 through 25 as the number one or number one as a supreme creator. He refers to God as the sustainer. And number two, or excuse me, number three, he, he presents God as a supreme being who is personable. You see, Paul's view of God, this contradicted the Epicureans who were atheistic and they believed that matter was eternal. Remember, the Stoics, they're pantheistic, so they believed everything is God. It's all the one. 
So there's not a personal being. There's not a supreme being that is wanting to unite with his creation. So when he says, this God that I tell you about, the supreme being, he doesn't live in temples. You see, the Athenians, they believe that, that deities resided in the statues that they erected in the temple. But Paul's pointing out that God, who's supreme over all things, is eternal and boundless, is not limited or can be contained by anything. And he preaches to them about the creation of Adam and Eve. Let me tell you guys from the beginning that he created creatures in his image. That's how we came to be. And he guided their way of living. He says here, he determined allotted periods. See, fatalism was a huge philosophy of the day. But he's saying that fatalism isn't the answer, but purpose and meaning through a loving and personable God is. Paul speaks to the providence of God throughout the course of history. If you go back to Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, where Daniel the prophet said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons and removes kings and sets up kings. And so he says, these people who have been appointed these times in these you know, periods of times in these locations are going to seek God. And God is not hard to find, Paul says. In each person, there is a desire to, to want to know who their creator is, just like a child who's an orphan. And so Paul's telling these philosophers, this God that I, that I tell you guys, we live and move and have our being because of him. Now, remember, Paul might be quoting from uh, Kritika. This was a poem that was written by the Cretan uh, poet Epimenides. Now, elsewhere, Paul would quote Epimenides back in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil bees, lazy guttons. Now, other scholars believe that Paul was simply summarizing many Greek philosophers, but the point is, and this is why he was such a masterful debater, he was well studied. Because where he says we are indeed his offspring, Paul's actually quoting from uh, the, fame, uh, the Phenomena, which is written by the Stoic poet Eratus, who lived from 315 to 240 BC. So talk about almost 300 years uh, ago, Paul's quoting from a philosopher. He's familiar with this stuff. And so he's demonstrating that there are many agreeable truths. As you guys are zealous, as you guys are very religious, you're very superstitious, but you're misguided. And just like this philosopher said this, and this philosopher said that, but let me tell you, it's pointing ultimately to God, who's the ultimate truth, the source of truth. And that's what you guys are missing. Now, in order to know the truth, you have to know the one who is true. And so he's saying in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver. So Paul's reiterating that God is not an idol that can be measured or was formed from someone's imagination. That's the difference. And so as he concludes in verse 30, he calls out the ignorance that is among the Athenians. So notice he doesn't start with that but he does in with that. And that's like when we give a gospel message. God loves you. There's a God who exists and he made things perfect and we blew it. And we're in sin. 
But there's a gift that he offers us through his son, Jesus. And so Paul's saying, listen, you guys are ignorant. And I'm encouraging you guys to repent, that you can actually repent to this deity. You can't repent to these idols, these statues, or to this unknown God. Because God, he's not an evil God. He's a patient and loving God who loves you and me because we are made in his image. Now he tells him in verse 31 about judgment. Because the day will come when God will judge the world. Psalm 96 verse 13, before the Lord For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in their faithfulness. So what Paul is trying to get these people to understand, this is so important for us and the masterfulness of Paul here is he doesn't want people to get so fixated in all this other stuff, but to start looking at it for what it is. Don't be ignorant of the facts. Don't study just to study. Study to learn the truth. You know, it's like people say, you know, just let the facts speak for themselves and wherever it leads, that's what we're going to accept. And so that's why he says in verse 32, says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So to the Greeks, remember, the body was evil. And therefore they rejected this notion of a bodily resurrection because Greeks were dualistic in their thinking. The soul was good and it lived on forever. And yet the body that's made of matter is evil and it ceased to exist after death. So how can a body, how can something good take on something bad and then rise from the dead, defeating something bad and being good? The afterlife was viewed as a ghostly netherworld. So this didn't make sense to them. Some believed and some rejected, just like today when you tell people about Jesus, some people believed he existed. Uh, Most people actually do, but there are some people who don't believe he existed. They're just made up. They're fanciful stories. And then there's people who believe that he did exist. He taught great things, but they don't believe in miracles because they don't believe in there's a God that exists. They don't believe there's anything that can happen outside this closed, isolated system we call the universe. So just like Paul was facing with these challenges then, we face them today. But notice in the end, verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some joined. So Paul's strong defense of God and the call to repent was received in three ways. Notice, there are going to be people who are going to mock. There are going to be people who are going to reject the message that you bring, my friends. Number two, there are going to be people like here that we're told they want to hear more. And then there's going to be the third. There are going to be people who are going to believe, we're told in verse 34. Now, Dionysus here, some scholars have suggested he became the bishop of Athens. And this is based on records by a church historian, a church father by the name of Eusebius. So that's pretty fascinating to think that as we started this chapter of Paul reaching the elite people, but then being rebuked and uh, persecuted by elite people, and then he goes to the Bereans and he comes to the Athens he's still reaching people who will have a major impact for the gospel in the future because of Paul's faithfulness. So why did I title this The Art of a Masterful Debater? Because of what we saw with Paul. So to leave you with this, my friends, no matter where you're at in your stage of life and in your faith, be well-read, study, pick up a good book, read more scripture. You're doing this podcast. And we go deep on this podcast. 
Sometimes I don't know if we're going to finish it 40 something minutes or it's going to be over an hour. But the point is, just let the Bible, you know, speak for itself, do the best that I can in my limited comprehension, but just, I pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, studying over 40 commentaries on average for each podcast. It takes a lot of work, but I love it because I want people like you and me. I want the body of believers to not be biblically literate, but to be like Paul here, that we are studied up. We are ready that we let the information that we learn in God's truth to be the transforming power that we need to reach the world that is lost. And so when we come up against a certain philosophy that we can understand it, whether it be Marxism, whether it be a form of atheism, whether it be Mormonism, like a, a cult or a world religion like Islam, that we learn about these things so that when you're at work or at school and you're encountering an atheist, you're encountering, encountering somebody who's a quote unquote gay Christian, they say, or you're encountering somebody um, who's a Mormon or a J-dub, you're, you're like, you know what? I've studied your stuff. And like Paul, you can navigate and engage people who are religious and engage people who are secular. That's why he was such a masterful debater because when it came down to brass tacks, when it came down to him engaging these different cultures, these different ideas, he did it with respect. So I hope that encourages you guys as we have learned how to better improve not just your debative skills, but how you with the proper strategy and with good discernment and insight can spread the gospel where God has called you to go. So thank you guys so much for paying attention, for listening. Thank you guys for your prayers. I look forward to hearing from you guys. If you have questions, if you have prayer requests, you can reach out to our ministry at info at And as I've been encouraging you on this episode, please prayerfully consider giving a donation to continue to support this ministry so we can grow it to reach more people just like you. So thank you guys. Until next time, Keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening, and keep standing strong in the Word of God.